please open your Bibles this morning again to Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 19. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 19, we'll read through to verse 24. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Why the law, then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor, to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. This is the word of the Lord. And you say, thanks be to God. Now, we have studied for a number of weeks now the book of Galatians, and we know that at the center of the book of Galatians is the issue that the law of God, God's law, can be used and was being used in a wrong way, not a right way. It was being used to harm the souls of the Galatian church. Wicked men had entered that church and had told the people that it was not sufficient to place their faith in the righteousness of Christ and his his substitutionary death, but that they had to go on past that and they had to put their faith also in their ability to keep the law of God. And the specific issue at the center of this debate was the issue of circumcision. And so it's, it's good that you place your faith in Jesus. It's good that... As Jews and Gentiles, you see Jesus as being the one to whom the Old Testament points. It's good that you are trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but don't think that that is sufficient to please God. You must become Jews. You must yourself now produce righteousness. And without that righteousness, you can't be saved because faith is a matter of showing itself and proving itself. In fact, Faith is insufficient. Faith must be combined with the law. It must be combined with works. The promise is insufficient in itself. It must be combined with obedience. Now, if we're inclined to think that this is a small theological battle, and of course to say that is really to say nothing, because today we've been taught to think of every theological battle as a small battle. We've been taught to think that what really matters is what we do, not what we think, not what we believe, not the doctrine that we hold to, but our sentiments, our feelings, our emotions. And so if I say it's a theological battle, all of you tend to yawn as, as, as Stephen prayed. And, and to think, well, this is one more of those places where men all through the ages have, have jousted with one another have uh, gone out in their ranks and, and sought to prove that they are better than one another. In other words, theology doesn't matter, doctrine doesn't matter, what we believe doesn't matter, what we do is what matters. Now, this is a false opposition. 
It's absolutely false. Faith and practice always go together. Always. And here we go. I can see it coming. Boy, has this been brought home to me this last week. Two ways. One that won't cause you to suck in your air, and the other which will. First, the one that's calm. I'm reading this last week an article in a journal called The New Criterion, and it's an article that's a review of a book that's written by a professor of law at University of Chicago. Her name is Martha Nussbaum. Some of you have heard of her. And she has written a book attacking the concept of shame. Now, the reviewer says quite rightly that it's, it's kind of a no-brainer that there's no need to attack the concept of shame in our culture today because it's dead. I mean, when is the last time anybody has shamed you, other than maybe your mother or grandmother, more likely your grandmother? You know, even the, somebody said this last week that they say to their child, shame on you. And I thought, I remember that. Well, anytime you think I remember that, you know it's dead, right? Shame is dead. There is no shame. We are a shameless age. It used to be that if you read about the ancient world, you'd grow red in the face just reading about what they did. But today we read about it and we think, really, they're just like us. So here this woman is writing a book about the great threat to American civil relations called shame. And in the course of the review, the reviewer writes that this woman, in the book, unsurprisingly, defends every form of sexual perversity that you can imagine saying all of them have a rightful place in American society, that they ought to be legal. Now, do you see there how faith and practice, doctrine and life go together? Somebody believes that it's proper to give yourself to every form of sexual immorality you want, and they think shame is bad. The doctrine... The practice. Do you see that? You can't separate doctrine and practice. It's impossible to do. The second has to do with a friend of mine who committed suicide a week and a half ago. <laughs> I used to do this at my old church. I'm going to do it now. And that is, I want you to turn off the recorder, please. I won't... A couple of meetings ago, we had a great fight on the... And so we come to what is a doctrinal section of Scripture where there are very precise arguments being made, where you have to think about meanings of words. And we yawn and we get tired and we think it shouldn't be this hard. Certainly, spiritual truth is spoon-fed. But brothers and sisters, it's not. All of the apparatus of the Old Testament 
the Passover and every detail of it, even down to what happened in Egypt on the night that the death angel went through, even down to what part of the home the blood was to be spattered on. And then you think of all the details of the Old Testament and you think, why did God make it so difficult? In the Garden of Eden, he didn't have to talk about the snake and the heel. He could simply have revealed right then Jesus Christ. Now, why go through all these laws of what you're to eat and what you're not to eat and, and when you're supposed to do this and when you're supposed to do that and this religious festival and that religious festival and, and all the distinctions between uh, who does what? Like, for instance, you know, why does it have to be Levites who carry the ark and why do they have to carry it with poles? Why can't they have it on a cart? And after all, why did Nadab, and, or not Nadab and Abihu, yes, them also, why did they have to die because they burned unholy fire? And what about the two guys that were carrying the, the ark on the cart back into Jerusalem? David had the best of intentions. Why, when one of them reached out to steady the ark, when it got shaken as they went down the road, why did he have to die? You see, all of this stuff, all of this stuff is doctrine. It's, it's God in his sovereign prerogative, being nitpicky. And if you're of the school that believes that what matters is the intentions of the heart, not the obedience, then you'll never get it. Because the road to hell is paved with good intentions. All roads don't lead to heaven. God is jealous for the unique glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I say that and all of us go, yeah, that's a no-brainer. Wouldn't the Father be uniquely jealous for the glory of His Son if the Son was perfectly obedient? And so we come back to the text and we see there's a battle royal going on in the Galatian church. And we see that Paul engages the battle, that he's very intense, that he damns and damns and damns again using the word damn in print for all generations of Christians to read, those who argue for circumcision. And again, I remind you what I've said many times. Not one of us, had we never read the book of Galatians and happened upon it, say this morning, during morning worship of Church of the Good Shepherd in the year 2004, if we were to read the Apostle Paul making the argument that damn those who argue that circumcision is a requirement, we would think this man lacks any sense of proportion. This man is seriously imbalanced. This man is not entirely sane. As a matter of fact, I've often said that I think Paul is insane. And I think any of us that love Jesus and that understand the Word of God are really insane. Uh, we're insane in our biology classes. We're insane in the union. We're insane as grandmothers. We're insane in everything we do because there is no peace, there is no truce between the ruler of this world and the ruler of the universe who made us and who has given us this, this his truth. And so what this is, is a long um, plea to you to do not grow impatient with doctrine. Do not think that 
Tim really preaches well when he just looks up from the Bible and just speaks from his heart. Now, I understand what you mean, but what about when I speak from a book? What about when the book is the Bible? Well, yeah, that's what we mean, you know, from the Bible. I say, well, what about when I call your attention to the meaning of a particular word in that particular book? Well, but look at us when you speak. I say, but what if I have to be precise and I have to read what I'm going to say? You know? Well, yeah, but look up a lot. <laughs> and I say to you, okay, fine, I will, if you will promise that you will not be impatient and yawn at theological arguments, but that you will believe that lives hang in the balance of words and sentences, that we are people of the book, we are people of the word, and that this is the word, and that we must be devoted to it. And that means sometimes we're going to have to get out of dictionary. And that's one of the things we're going to do today. Now, returning to then our text, if I have your patience, if I have your attention for a theological argument, look at the text and you'll see it is theological. The place of the law has caused confusion and it would be absolutely natural for those who have heard the Apostle Paul, who have read what he's saying, who have felt the intensity of his argument, with the other men of the church who want everybody to be circumcised, it would be absolutely predictable, normal, natural, understandable for someone to conclude that the Apostle Paul was the enemy of the Old Testament and that he was the agent God was using to get us to be done with the law, the whole Old Testament, and to start over with Jesus Christ and to go into the grace of the epistles that we would once and for all say, I will not try to keep the law. The law has no place in the life of a Christian. It is grace and grace alone. And Paul shoves us over to the other side, and it would be absolutely understandable if we would say what the Jews said when Paul came into the temple, and they cried out, trying to create a riot around Paul, trying to kill him. They cried out about Paul. Men of Israel, Acts 21:28, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. So that's the understanding of the Apostle Paul. He preached against what? Our people, the law, and this place, namely the temple. And so if today we were to say the Old Testament's over, we're New Testament people, and now that Jesus has come, God has used Paul to reveal to us the purpose of Christ's coming, and that's in the epistles. We're people of the epistles. Okay, we're people of grace, not of the law. Well, Paul anticipates this. And Paul, having made the case that we are not to be saved by the law, stops and says the question that all of us have. We love doubting Thomas. Thomas says, Lord, I won't believe until I put my finger in the hole in your side. You know? Well, here we have Paul, again, lowering himself as Jesus did. Thomas, here, put your finger in my side. Paul says, okay, this is your argument. Your argument is, why the law then? All right, why the law then? And that's how our text starts. And then he says it was added because of transgressions. Now, what does he mean when he says it was added because of transgressions? Well, first of all, let's look at the second half of this verse. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. 
Now, this answer is not easy to understand. It's not immediately apparent what Paul means when he says it was added because of transgressions. It's important to note that so far in the book of Galatians, we have been dealing with the place of the law and the promise in the history of salvation. The law has different uses. We are only addressing one of those uses here, namely the way God uses the law in the work of, yes, in the work of, say it, salvation. He's addressing the use of the law in the work of what? Salvation. Now, what other purposes and uses does the law have? Well, one use of the law is the use that's at the center of every television program and every debate and every court case before our state and our nation today. And that is whether the law of God is to be used as a restraint against wickedness by the civil authority. And it's a matter of great uh, confusion to me that so many men who are uh, teaching elders, pastors of the Word of God, today are arguing that it's perfectly fine to remove the law from the civil compact of nations. And so you have a professor at my denominational seminary covenant arguing in public that sodomy laws should be taken off the books of our country. He's an ethicist. He's a professor of theology. He argues remove sodomy laws from the books of laws of our country. I don't want to get into why he does that, but I do want to say that clearly the law of God has been a great gift to civilization. And if you look at the history of Western civilization, you think, why is it that when missionaries went to India and to China, they gasped in shame and horror seeing little baby girls left at the side of the rivers? Why didn't they just handle that as one more uh, normal part of life? Well, because they had been raised in Western civilization where we had repented of the exposing of little girls by the sides of rivers and allowing them to die. It had been known before. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, it was very common. You take any child you don't want, and typically they are little girls, and you leave them out. You expose them, and they die. And so the early Christians did the first thing that people of God do, and they went out on the slopes behind their house, and they thought to themselves, and their pastors said to them, look, it is wrong for you to be buying all this food for your dogs while these children starve on the streets and on the fields behind your houses. And so the early Christians went out, and they picked up these little babies, and they brought them into their home, and they raised them. And would it make sense that when the Christians brought these little ones into their home and adopted them, that they then began to have a leavening and a salt and a light effect on their culture. And pretty soon their culture and the Roman emperor changed the law so that in a few centuries, and that's a short time in in, in history, it was against the law to, to commit infanticide. And then pretty soon also it was against the law to kill unborn children in the wombs of women. It was well, well known in the ancient world how you could get an abortion. It's just that our antibiotics made it much safer today. And again, Christians influenced the law. And what happened to hospitals? Christians influenced the law and the sick were cared for tenderly. What happened to prisons? Christians influenced the law and it was no longer the responsibility of the loved ones to come in and provide food and and care or the prisoner would die. What happened with slavery? It wasn't liberals that got rid of slavery. 
What a joke. It was Christians. And what about child labor? It was Christians. You want to know what the world is like where the law of God has no place in the civil compact and civil society? Go back to India. Go back to China. Both places are so frequently killing girls in the womb and after birth that what happens? The entire proportion of men to women in India and China has changed. So that now they're up to currently, what is it, Lucas? Would you say 5%? 3 percent, 6? It's a significant percentage. And when you're talking about billions of people, think about this. And so here we are in the Western world. We have had the inheritance of Christians being the salt and light Jesus commanded us to be. You are the salt of the earth. What good is salt that has lost its flavor? It's good for nothing but to be what? Thrown out. That's what Jesus said. And so this is the first use of the law. The law has always been sent as a gift from God to civil rulers to restrain the natural wickedness that we all would do otherwise. In other words, it's to be used by the civil authority who bears the sword as God has given him, Romans. All right? It's to be used to strike fear in your heart that you will not be as bad as you would be. All right? And that's you. That's me. All right? So that's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is the law use that we're looking at today. Now, I'm speaking in terms of, uh, of chronology, and that is the use of the law as an instructor, a tutor, a, uh, someone who leads us to the gospel. All right? In other words, the place of the law in salvation. The third use of the law is the use of the law in sanctification. It is the means by which the Holy Spirit opens our heart up to love God and to live according to the character of God. We become holy as God is holy. And it is this third use of the law that causes, uh, again, much conflict, much debate, much fighting in the church today. Exactly how should we use the law as a means of sanctification without falling into legalism and good works, all right? Without our preaching becoming moralistic uh, exhortations instead of a proclamation of the gospel. So you've got the civil authority being given the law as a restraint against wickedness that men and women will not be as bad as they could be. You've got the use of the law driving us to the cross and to salvation by faith alone. You've got the use of the law where it is the means the Holy Spirit uses to lead us to holiness as believers. Now that third use of the law is what the Old Testament refers to when it says that in the New Covenant, the law will be what? It will be written on our hearts. <laughs> so, when the Old Testament points forward to the dispensation we live in, all right, it does not say it's a lawless dispensation. It says that it's an unbelievably lawful dispensation. So lawful that it's no longer simply the repressing and fearful effect of the civil authority impressing it upon us, but now it is a part of who we are. And if you know Jesus Christ, and if you love Him, and if you've learned what it is that He means when He says that we are to take up our cross and follow Him, 
if you've learned what he means when he says that we are to be one another's neighbors, that we are to give ourselves serving the needy, then you look back at the Mosaic Law and you think, how nitpicky and, and limited and superficial and small and, and, uh, and, and superficial and, and, and thin and it is. Because once the law of love is written on your heart, once you see Jesus' character for what it is, once you hear the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that any man that looks with and a woman with lust in his eye has committed adultery. All of a sudden, you, 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 as a Christian, you say, you know, I'd like to go back to the Old Testament law. <laughs> you know, right? All right, now, three uses of the law. Civil authority, salvation, sanctification. Throw out the two on the side. Throughout sanctification, throughout the civil use of the law. That is not what the Apostle Paul is speaking of here when he asks the question, the rhetorical question, why then the law? He is addressing the issue of salvation at the center. All right? And this is where he goes. We're dealing with salvation, how a man can stand justified before God. Only one of these three purposes is what the Apostle Paul is dealing with. And here is his answer. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Now, if we look at the parallel text in the book of Romans, the fifth chapter, the 20th verse, we'll find an almost identical statement. And there it says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. So, in Galatians 3, it was added because of transgressions. Romans 5, it came in so that transgression would increase. The law of God was added, it was sent for the sake of transgression, specifically that transgressions would increase. Now, this is not a simple response, is it? This is not something that's intuitive. This is not something that you hear it and you go, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> right? Who would ever have thought, let alone said, that God sent his law into the world so that there would be an increase of sin? So that men might become worse transgressors. So that failures might multiply. You would never have thought that. You would have thought that it was sacrilegious to say such a thing. What can be the meaning of this radical statement? Well, first, ask, to what was the law added? And we're told that the law was added to what? The law was added to the promise. The law had its proper place, but never was its proper place to displace the prior and superior promise of grace that God gave Abraham. Rather, the law had a sort of side road function, a parallel or supporting role that did not threaten or usurp the promise, but ran in parallel with that promise until the arrival of the one to whom that promise pointed, namely the Lord Jesus. The law was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. 
And the law could not have taken precedence over the promise since the law came by way of a mediator. This is the meaning of the expression here where it says, through angels by the agency of a mediator. Moses was employed by God as a go-between between himself and the children of Israel. The law came to the Israelites indirectly, not directly. It came through angels and through Moses. And so Paul is making the case here that since the promise came directly, since the law came indirectly through the agency of angels and mediators, what's the point? The point is that the law is inferior to the promise. It is subordinate to the promise. Because God speaks directly through promise, God speaks indirectly through law. Now you might ask yourself, uh, when the law was given... Moses was interposed between God and the people, but when the promise was given, Abraham received that promise directly from God. And you might ask yourself, so again, why the law? If the whole point of Galatians is to establish the superiority of the promise, why the law? What's the point of the law? The law was added because of transgressions. The law was added to the promise in order that man might become aware of the infinite gap between himself and his creator, between sinful man and the holy God who made him. And as understanding of the law was added, it was inevitable that sin would increase. The law, Romans 5, came in so that the transgression would increase. You see, when we know the law, we are driven by that knowledge to transgress that law. The minute our father or mother says no, we say yes. Now, what illustration would I use right now? I have to use Augustine's Confessions. If you haven't read it, read it. It's a wonderful book. But there's a very well-known episode in book two of his Confessions, chapter four, where he says this. He's, he's, He's talking to us And and don't you wish that autobiographies were written like this still today? Don't you wish that today people wrote autobiographies as confessions of their sin and of their stupidity and their resistance to God and of the hound of heaven coming after them and saving them despite themselves? That's how the Confessions, which is to this day the best-known autobiography that's ever been written, that's how it gloriously reveals Jesus Christ. And being a good and honest man after Jesus Christ gave him faith, Augustine tells us what he was really and is still really like. This is why so often in the Confessions there is a request that the readers pray for him. All right? Now, here's the story. Augustine writes, Theft is punished by thy law, O Lord, and by the law written in men's hearts, when not even ingrained wickedness can erase. For what thief will tolerate another thief stealing from him? Even a rich thief will not tolerate a poor thief who is driven to theft by want. Yet, and here he's making, I was even worse than this. He's making that kind of an argument. He says, yet, I had a desire to commit robbery, and I did so compelled to it by neither hunger nor poverty, but through a contempt for well-doing and a strong impulse to iniquity. For I stole something which I already had in sufficient measure and of much better quality. I did not desire to enjoy what I stole, but I only desired to enjoy the theft and the sin itself. 
There was a pear tree close to our own vineyard, heavily laden with fruit, which was not tempting either for its color or for its flavor. Late one night, having prolonged our games in the streets until then, as our bad habit was, a group of young scoundrels, and I among them, went to shake and rob this tree. We carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs after barely tasting some of them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. The minute you tell your son, no, he says, yes. He didn't know the word yes until you told him no. And Augustine says, doing this pleased us all the more because it was what? Forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart, which you did pity even in that bottomless pit. Behold now, let my heart confess to thee what it was seeking there. When I was being gratuitously wanton, there was no purpose of this evil. He didn't need it, he didn't care, it didn't have better taste. It was just simply evil for evil's sake because it was forbidden. It was wanton and gratuitous sin. I had no inducement to evil but the evil itself. It was foul and I loved it. I loved my own undoing. I loved my error. Not that for which I erred, but the error itself. A depraved soul falling away from security in thee to destruction in itself, seeking nothing from the shameful deed, but shame itself. And the Apostle Paul says, the law was given so that transgressions might be known and that they might increase. Now to what end? To the end that man might despair of himself. You see, people who grow up in a country where the law is no longer a part of our civil society, where it no longer is on the books of law, where judges call evil good and good evil, are people who have been robbed of coming to the end of themselves. How can someone who is completely unaware of the no to theft Come to the repentance of Augustine. How can he know the completely, ridiculously meaningless nature of his sin unless he's able to know that he acted against the law because the law was there and he loved to fight against the character of God? How can people in a country like America ever come to know the meaning of grace if they have not met the law? And so when we as Christians undercut the place of the law in the society that we live in, when we fail to struggle and to fight for the law continuing to be on the codes of law of our states and our nation, what we're doing is we're being complicitous in the ignorance that allows people to go to hell never having come to the end of themselves. I mean, think about it. Those of you that were raised in Christian homes... What is the most precious thing that you had as you were raised in that home? And I'll answer for myself. It was my father. I mean, I love my mother, and my mother did this too. 
But it was my father saying to me, as I grow up, time after time after time, Tim, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And slowly my mind is indoctrinated and propagandized to the point where I look at myself as filthy and then I go to the psychiatrist as an adult and I tell him what a mean and awful father I had and the psychiatrist says, yes, but I am the sworn enemy of guilt and you'll never have to deal with this again. Here's a pill and here's a concept. Now take baby steps. I despise, I despise such fathers. I despise them. I despise such psychiatrists. I hate them with a perfect hatred. Because they are destroying your soul. Because they are robbing you of the grace of Jesus Christ. When a father and a mother fail to hold before you the awesome holiness of God, They have failed at the single most important task that God has delegated to them over that child who belongs to God and not to them. And when you're surrounded by a soft and effeminate and sentimental culture that thinks that everyone should be a mother and hate fathers, I want you to understand that fathers are God's gift to you just as much as mothers And if you have a mother or a grandmother who points out your wickedness to you in such a way that you are driven to despair of yourself, that mother is fatherly good. And praise God for all the mothers and grandmothers who have not allowed their sons and their husbands to destroy the souls of their children. This is not a rant against femininity. But this is a defense of the fatherhood of God, of the holiness of God, of the necessity of the law bringing you to an end of yourself. And I'm going to tell a story to end. And the story is about my son Joseph. Joseph has had a lot of things easy in his life, and one of the things is intellectual pursuits. But then the time came where he came home and admitted that he was at an end of himself. And I remember us sitting around our butcher block table in the kitchen. And as a father, my discussing with Joseph his inability to do the work that was necessary to get the grades that he should get because of his ability. And I don't know how long it went on. It must have gone on for an hour to an hour and a half. And it just went on and on. And of course, I was completely focused on his will. What is wrong with your will, Joseph? Where is your will? Don't you know you have to at some point say no to all these good relationships? No to all these late night conversations. At some point, you can't study a language and not learn it. You can't just get good grades by osmosis. You can't just produce without sweating. Joseph, what's wrong with you? And of course, everything I'm saying, I'm thinking about myself, which of course is why many of us avoid any discipline. Because we don't want to have to think about ourselves. (laughs) What's wrong with that boy is that he has me for a father. 
And what's wrong with me is that I have Adam for a father. Joseph is the product of Adam. And we talk and we talk and I say to him and I say to him, Joseph, come on, work, work. What's wrong with you? Are you a wimp? Work, work. Okay? And I go on and on and on. And pretty soon what happens is a meltdown. And Joseph just starts, starts crying. And he's in college. And I say to him, Joseph, where are we? And Joseph says, I know what I need to do, but I can't do it. And then we go up to the bedroom, and then I'm crying. Joseph's crying, I'm crying, right? And all of a sudden, God reveals to us both that Joseph is a man, a woman, a son, a daughter, that he is the child of Adam. And thank God for professors who drove Joseph to despair over his own willpower to study as he ought. I mean, even that is a gift from God. And it brought that son and that father that day to do what? What do you think we did? Well, we set up schedules and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, not Sunday because we don't study on Sunday, right? And then broke it down into hours. And then I'm going to call you every 15 minutes this next week. So when you go back to Nashville, you know, is that what we did? No. What we did was we both bowed our heads and we prayed. And we went to the Father for our need. Now, we're going to get into this again next week. But don't you see it? This is the meaning of the text of Scripture, where it shows us that the law has a wonderful use. And the wonderful use is to bring us to the end of ourselves. And so what this means this morning is, if you're hearing what I'm saying, and you see this in yourself, you see that you are absolutely incapable of not wishing murder and adultery and theft and, and blasphemy and lust and all these things that you in your heart desire the very thing that God opposes. You are precisely at the point where you may turn to Jesus Christ and say, with nothing in my hands I come. That's the purpose of the law. It leads you to Jesus Christ, who himself is our righteousness. He is the perfect Lamb of God. Don't fight against the law as it brings you to Jesus. It's a good schoolmaster. It's a good nanny. It's a good tutor. It's a good crossing guard. It's a good principal. Let it do its work. And then fall on your face before Jesus Christ, who is your righteousness. I want us to close today by singing. Nick is going to come and lead us. The song that we sang earlier, not the one that is in your bulletin. And the words will be up here. But meditate on these words as we conclude our worship. Are these your words? Have you come to Jesus in faith? Have you forsaken your own ability and your own righteousness in despair? Have you turned to Jesus? Let's stand as we sing.